This morning, to start out our time together, I'm going to talk just very briefly of the dangers of an avalanche. You don't hear about that as much today. It kind of is something that you would hear a lot about in books as people were traveling across mountains and so on, and it could be a significant danger. And if you're still traveling through mountains and have to go over certain passes, it still can be a danger. And for those of you that like to go skiing out in Colorado, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's quite likely as you're getting to the top of lifts and and so on, especially early in the day, sometimes before they even open the lifts, you'll hear the blast, kaboom, and all of a sudden there'll be an avalanche that is controlled to try and get it before it builds to the point that it's dangerous. So they try and monitor and manage all that. Some places in Colorado now, they're actually mounting what looks like a spaceship type of a thing, about the size of an outhouse, but it looks like a spaceship, on a pole, and every so often they can just trigger that thing to to do a big explosion, kaboom, and nobody has to be nearby, can be safer in all of that. But to be caught in an avalanche, I imagine, would be a rather scary thing, to say the least. I borrowed this video of an individual that's snowboarding, and you might see here that right about there, everything starts to just break. On down the hill, and look at how quickly those trees are going past. And the danger of an avalanche is not so much the slide. I suppose it can be if you're going over a ledge or you hit a tree but it's that you will get buried under the snow. And as you get buried, you know, the weight of the snow can make you have to exhale and you can't get new breath. And so people suffocate down below and sometimes not even very far below the surface of the snow. This video is actually of an individual. His name is Tom Oy. He was caught in this avalanche doing some extreme snowboarding in 2017 And it was fortunate for him that before this took place and before this happened, he was given an early birthday present three weeks before this very incident that we just watched. And it was something that looks like this. And you may not be familiar that something like this even exists. It's called an avalanche airbag. What is an avalanche airbag? Well, it's basically a small backpack. There's a few different ones pictured here. And what you will have is that you have this little air canister inside. And so when you pull the lever, whether you mount it on your right shoulder, on your left, whether you're right or left-handed, when you pull that lever, this airbag inflates very quickly and keeps you basically at the top of what is very similar to a raging river and keeps you from getting buried. And they say that your chances of survival then increase by 50%. This individual that we just saw pictured had one of these devices, pulled the lever, and was okay. Here's another individual that is snowboarding, and you'll see again that right about now, there's the break, and he's trying to stay on top and surf, if you will, this big slide, but he loses control somewhere in there and gets caught up in the sweep and the current. He pulls his avalanche airbag, and you can sort of see the orange there as it keeps him on the top instead of getting buried. And there he is, a survivor. You know, we've been going through this series entitled Final Events, and we've been hitting a lot of different topics in this series. You'll see many of them there. The end time prophetic catalyst, the abomination of desolation, the four stages of the Sunday law, the new world order, the little time of trouble, the latter rain and loud cry, the death decree, and today's piece is Jacob's time of trouble. And then we still have two more pieces yet to come, God's people delivered, and then the second coming. 
But as we continue on in these events, all right, is my title up there just yet? The title for today is God's Faithfulness Through the Seven Last Plagues. We are told that this will be the most trying of times in the history of this planet. And oftentimes we think that events are worse in anticipation than in reality, but we are told through the pen of inspiration that when it comes to the seven last plagues, this will not be the case. And I imagine it may feel something like an avalanche when what you thought was solid beneath you gives way and you find yourself tumbling down the mountain at a high rate of speed, out of control and thinking this will certainly end in death. But I want to say just on the outset here, if I can give you a spoiler alert If anybody here has blood pressure rising, let me just remind you that during the seven last plagues, God's people will be protected. They will have, if you will, the avalanche airbag. They will have a faith that brings and carries them through this time that keeps them above, if you will. What does Psalm 91 say? And thank you, Matthew for going through that with us. Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge. Is he your refuge? Even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any, what's the word? Plague come near your dwelling. Friends, that's good news. Our faith in Jesus Christ alone will keep us afloat during the scary time ahead. You may recall, just like the plagues of Egypt, they were protected by the blood of the lamb. Just like the plagues in Egypt, we will be protected by the blood of the lamb. Amen? Just like the three Hebrews in the book of Daniel, they were not preserved from the fire, but God was with them where? In the midst of the fire. And so just a little review here. We have the phases of the Sunday law that began, and I put a line there, and that will be the catalyst that starts this domino effect, and the events will be rapid ones. We can put the close of probation up there and draw that line, followed by the second coming, and we'll draw that line. And we've been unpacking a little bit in this series what takes place in between. We have this little time of trouble, and if you missed that, you can go back and grab that sermon. And today is Jacob's time of trouble. And you will notice that in the little time of trouble, we have forced Sunday worship. We have the call to leave the cities. The mark of the beast is received. We cannot buy or sell. There's the death decree. And then there's the latter rain, the loud cry, the sealing of the 144,000, the blotting of sin, and the judgment of the living. Then we have Michael stand up, and we'll see that again today, meaning he is standing up from his role of intercessor in the most holy place. And that is the close of probation. And then we enter into Jacob's time of trouble, which is also the seven last plagues, where the saints suffer but do not perish during the plagues, and is worldwide devastation by Satan, and also the idea of Armageddon. And so we have seen all of that, and we have talked about much of that. And so as we enter into this piece where we're going to unfold a little bit more fully this time of Jacob's trouble... I want to begin with the three angels' message, Revelation 14, 
Verse 6 and 7, you know these verses well. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Friends, the gospel is everlasting, and it's to go to the entire world, and that is what God has called us to do. And it continues, saying with a loud voice, fear God. This is not with trembling, but give him honor. Give him priority. Give him place in your life. Fear him. Respect him. Give him homage. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. This very language takes us back, if you will, to the Garden of Eden, to him being the creator of all things. The language also reminds us to worship him who made. And at the end of that creation week, we have the Sabbath. And so it's a call to remember our creator and the Sabbath. Then if we skip down to the third angel in verse 9 of chapter 14, then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark, on his forehead or on his hand. And so we have the worshiping of the creator versus the worshiping of the beast. We have the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. And we've spent a fair amount of time unpacking all of this. And the mark of the beast is received when Sunday worship is forced, when we are forced to honor this day, this image, this replica of the genuine, but it's not the genuine. And when they say you have to go along or else, and people just go along, then it's forced. And it's the mark of the beast. And so it says, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, meaning what he thinks and what he does, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So the simple question we want to ask this morning is, what is the wrath of God? Well, the Bible gives us that answer too. Just the next chapter over, Revelation 15, verse 1, not too many verses away. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So the wrath of God, spoken of in the third angel's message, is the seven last plagues, or sometimes we refer to it as Jacob's time of trouble. And you might be wondering at this point, well, what is this wrath of God? God's wrath is not his anger at sinners. God loves sinners. He died for sinners. While you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for me. No, the wrath of God is not his anger at sinners. Rather, it is his judgment upon sin. It is the call for justice. Do we hear that call today for justice? And when is justice served? Truly, I believe it's in these moments when the God of the universe that can read our hearts and our minds and know our motives and what's behind what we do and don't do and all of these things. And sometimes we think that we need to be the one to set everything straight. And there's a time and a place for that. But ultimately, 
God's going to have the last word. I will judge, declares the Lord. And so during the seven last plagues, God withdraws his protective hand and all of the hellish forces break loose. I wouldn't mind if my Bible taught that I would be secretly raptured before any of this happened. I wouldn't argue with that. Except that's not what we have here in the scriptures. But the good news is we also have a God that doesn't leave us during that time. But he goes through this with us. The seven last plagues are the awesome result of a world separating from God and a planet in rebellion. Sadly today, many are not concerned with the seven last plagues. In fact, I imagine if you did a survey on the street, no one would really be nervous. No one would be losing sleep over it. In fact, in the inspired writings, it says this in early writings, page 64, then I saw that the seven last plagues were soon to be poured out upon those who have no shelter. Meaning, who's the shelter in the time of storm? Jesus Christ. Yet the world regarded them, the seven last plagues, no more than they would so many drops of water that were about to fall. I was then made capable of enduring the awful sight of the seven last plagues, the wrath of God. And the inhabitants of the world would be as though they had never been or would suffer from the incurable sores and withering plagues that would come upon them and they would find no deliverance but be destroyed by them. And then she writes in a rather vulnerable way, terror seized me and I fell upon my face before the angel and begged of him to cause the sight to be removed, to hide it from me, for it was too dreadful. The closest I can imagine is to say, turn the TV off, I don't want to see that. It's too much, it's too terrible, it's too awful. Then I realized, as never before, the importance of searching the word of God carefully to know how to escape the plagues, that the word declares shall come on the ungodly who shall worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in their foreheads or in their hands. She said, it was a great wonder for me that any could transgress the law of God and tread down his holy Sabbath when such awful threatenings and denunciations were against them. Do you feel the weight of that statement? She's saying, I can't fathom, I can't understand. Why would people turn their backs on two of the most precious gifts, the law of God and his holy Sabbath? Why would they turn, I guess the Sabbath is in the law, but why would they turn their backs on these precious gifts that God has given to his people? They're not hard, they're not difficult. They're in our best interest and for our best good. He gives us the power to obey them. Why would people be so staunchly opposed and would rather say, yeah, I'll take my chances. Bring on the seven last plagues. So again, when does this take place? Going back to our chart, we have the close of probation there in the middle. And then we have Jacob's time of trouble right in there. We have the seven last plagues. And you might say, well, how do we know that? Well, we kind of already studied this a little bit, but in the last verses of Daniel 11 is one place. There's many places I suppose we could go, but we see the loud cried message come out of Babylon, and that infuriates papal Rome. He takes, in response to that, he's trying to figure out a way to destroy God's people, and there's this death decree, and that's what we looked at 
last time and then directly following that in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 Michael stands up and that is the close of probation and we can read the verses I'll put them on the screen Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 at that time Michael another name for Jesus or Christ shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as what never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found where? Written in the book. And this is the book of life. I want my name there. You want your name there. But we are again given this beautiful promise that we will be protected through Jacob's time of trouble because we have God's seal, the seal of the living God. And so at the end of the world, as papal Rome tries to set its mark of authority by advocating the worship of Sunday, God's people will demonstrate his seal of authority by proclaiming the truth of the seventh-day Sabbath to the world. And these are the words that come from the most holy place at that time in the heavenly sanctuary. It says, he who is unjust... Let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And that is the close of probation. When Michael stands up in response to this death decree and probation closes for the world. And so at this point in time, all cases have been decided. All those that are righteous will remain righteous. How do you know, God? I know their heart. I know where they are. I know their faith. And I place my seal upon them. Can you prove it? Just wait. And then all those who are wicked will remain wicked. How do you know, God? How do you know that when the plagues don't start to fall, it'll be like the atheist in the foxhole and they'll say, Lord, have mercy on me. Save me, a sinner. Because many have the picture that God's up there and he's saying, I'm sorry, too late. Probation is closed, too late. But that's not the picture of God. The picture of God is that he knows when everyone has made a decision in their minds, in their hearts, and they're not changing their decision. Have you ever made a decision and you're done? You've said, I've weighed the evidence. I've looked at this issue long enough I've heard both sides. I'm making a decision and I'm done. It's the close of probation. And Jesus knows. And so we have the seal of God and we have the mark of the beast. How do you know they won't change their minds? Just wait and see. Here's another quote from Life Sketches 116 that I saw that Jesus would not leave the most holy place until every case was decided either for salvation or destruction and that the wrath of God could not come until Jesus had finished his work in the most holy place, laid off his priestly attire and clothed himself with the garments of vengeance or judgment. And so he's not going to leave until everybody makes a decision one way or the other. And then he stands up. I just imagine a court of law and all of a sudden the judge stands up. What does that mean? We're done here. He stands up and walks out. Everybody else stands up. Okay, I guess we're done. And so when Jesus or Michael stands up in the most holy place, it's the close of probation. So again, if every case has been decided, why do we need the seven last plagues? 
Well, I hope you'll see as this unfolds, it's because the seven last plagues show a waiting world and a watching universe that God's children will be faithful no matter what. And that the wicked will not repent no matter what. It's a vindication of God's character. It's a vindication of God's judgments. It's the proof that everything that the beast said they could deliver, they cannot deliver. And so here, justice is served. And so let's look at the message of the plagues. It's in Revelation chapter 16. We're going to read those. I'm not going to put all of Revelation 16 on the screen for you. Because I think there's something valuable about seeing it in your Bible. Is that just up on the screen or is that in my Bible too? I want you to check it out and see for yourself. But we're going to see that God is not punished just for the sake of punishing. We'll see that they're not random plagues. We will see more clearly the purpose of God in these plagues and how much they teach us about Jesus. And so to begin, we're in Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. As we look on these seven last plagues. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Now I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, where's the voice coming from? The temple. Michael has just stood up. And he says, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so, verse 2, the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Have you ever seen a boil or a sore? I remember when I was a student missionary, several in our group, and I have my theories as to why, but I'm not going to share them here, but I remember one of my friends got a boil about this big on the side of his body. This was not a pleasant occurrence by any means. It was painful. It was tender. It would kind of sort of cover over and then it would have pressure and then it would need to be popped and then it would ooze. Anybody grossed out yet? That was one. He'd run out of clean laundry and want to come borrow mine. I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. And so here we have in verse 2, first went out and poured his bowl upon the earth, and foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. So who did the sore fall upon? Those who had the mark of the beast. So I suppose we could ask this other question. Who did it not fall upon? Those that don't have the mark of the beast. Inversely, those that have the seal of God. To which I say, praise the Lord. So plague number one, foul and evil sores like a boil. And again, I want to emphasize this simple question along these lines. What did those that enforced the mark of the beast say? Meaning before the close of probation, when all this pressure, 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 push, push, push. What did they say to enforce the mark of the beast and persuade people to receive the mark of the beast? I imagine they said something very much like, if you receive the mark of the beast, you will be given physical security. You don't want to suffer pain, right? You don't want to be persecuted, right? You don't want to go through all of that. Here's an easy way out. Just receive the mark of the beast. 
And in those moments, I imagine it will be very tempting to say, is it really worth all of this? Is this even true what it says? Do I really want to put myself through all of that? But here in this first plague, it's not arbitrary. It's saying that physical affliction, rather than being protected from that, those who enforce the mark of the beast can't deliver on what they say. We'll give you physical security if you accept the mark of the beast. That's man's message. But we find, rather, that all physical security is in Christ. That's God's message. All physical security is in Christ. Man says, if you go along with us, we can promise you physical security. But the irony is, they cannot deliver on their promise, and now they're covered in boils. Friends, all physical security is in Christ. Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help when in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. Almost sounds like an avalanche. And though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, God's going to be my refuge. Sometimes people ask this question, are these plagues universal? Well, Spirit of Prophecy helps us out with that in Great Controversy 628. These plagues are not universal, she writes, or the inhabitants of the earth would be wholly cut off. Have mercy. Yet they will be the most awful scourges that have ever been known to mortals. All the judgments upon men prior to the close of probation have been mingled with mercy. But if we continue on, the pleading of blood of Christ has shielded the sinner from receiving the full measure of his guilt. But in the final judgment, wrath is poured out unmixed without mercy. Well, that doesn't seem very nice. Folks, they had opportunities to receive and respond to the mercy of God over and over and over again. And the response that they have given over and over and over again is thanks but no thanks. I don't need you. I don't need your gospel. I don't need your scripture texts. You're a bunch of fanatics anyway. Leave me alone. And it's here in this final judgment that God's mercy, even in part, is pulled back. And he says, have your way. I'll leave you alone. Plague number two. Verse 3 of Revelation 16, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. And so we can add this to our list. Number two, the sea becomes like blood, and everything in the sea dies. Friends, let me ask you, what's this going to do to shipping? What's this going to do to the economy? Do we have a test run of this? I can't believe it's been all the way back in April 20 of 2010. The Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion, do you remember that? For 87 days, nearly 200 million gallons of oil poured into the Gulf of Mexico. You say, oh, that looks kind of pretty. You can hardly see it. Do you remember the impact it had on shipping in this country? On gas prices? On supply and demand? And yet that was one relatively tiny gulf. What would that do if it engulfed the planet. Well, maybe it's not universal. Why? Because otherwise no one would survive. But let me ask you this. When there was pressure to receive the mark of the beast, what did the people say? 
if you receive the mark of the beast, it will enable you to buy and sell. So man's message, if you accept the mark of the beast, you will enjoy economic security. But Christ's message is all economic security is in Christ. Again, all the things they promise, they can't deliver. But God gives promises. He says, your bread will be given him. His water will be sure, Isaiah 33, 16. Just like God cared for Elijah in the wilderness when the ravens fed him, our bread and water will be sure. Does that mean ravens will bring us the bread? Maybe, I don't know. Will it mean it'll be like manna in the wilderness? Maybe, I don't know. But the irony is those that they were, were trying to preserve their temporal lives by receiving the mark of the beast soon find out. This very basic principle that Jesus taught us in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, plague number three. It says then, we're beginning in verse four now. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be because you have judged these things for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And so in the third plague, the source of life becomes unusable. Water, can't drink it. And so the magnitude of the crisis for the wicked truly escalates in this plague. And part of the reason why is in verse six, for they have shed the blood of saints and martyrs. Remember before the close of probation, there will be martyrdom, but not after. Why? Because we're not playthings of the devil. The only reason there will be martyrdom before the close of probation because the faith of Christian martyrs will encourage some court judge, some jury, some onlooker to accept the gospel and God will allow life to be taken only when it's going to promote the gospel for someone else. We're not just playthings of the devil. But during the plagues, the devil cannot take our life. Our life is hid in Christ if we are committed to Christ. And furthermore, why is God giving blood to the wicked to drink? Because this beast's power has shed the blood of saints and prophets and murdered innocent saints and prophets in such a heinous way that the angel says to the wicked that they are worthy to drink blood. If you go back and study the seals of Revelation, we haven't covered that in this series, but during the fifth seal, the souls are under the altar and they're crying out and asking, how long? Do you remember that? How long? Will it be until God would judge and avenge our blood, they say? It's in Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11. Millions upon millions of the righteous died during the 1,260 years of papal persecution. Many more will be martyred during that early time of trouble before the close of probation. And their blood is crying out figuratively, how long? And here judgment has come. That time has come. And he repays the wicked for their evil. And so we add that to the list. We have sores, seas turn to blood, rivers turn to blood. Man's message, take the mark of the beast and you'll preserve your life. But the message of the third plague is all of our life is in Christ. 
All our life is hidden Christ if we're committed to Christ. Plague number four, we're in verse eight. It says, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Here God uses the sun, which he created as an instrument of punishment towards those who worship it. Despite the teachings of scripture that says very clearly that we should only honor the seventh day Sabbath as the true day. Yet notice the stubbornness of the wicked here in verse 9. How many plagues? Four have already passed, but do we see them changing their minds? Do we see repentance? Do we see, Lord, have mercy on us? No. Rather, they blaspheme the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent And they did not give him glory. Even the judgments of God will not change their minds. Why was that the close of probation, God? Because I already know. I know where people's hearts lie. Prove it. He says, okay. So we have the scorching sun. So men are scorched with the sun. And what is the object of this controversy? Worship rather than worshiping the creator on the Sabbath, the memorial of creation. They have passed some kind of a law, a Sunday law. What they didn't realize was that the object of the law that they just passed has been an object of pagan worship down through the ages. Egyptians worship the sun in Emrah. Babylonians worship the sun in Belmarduk. Persians worship the sun in Mithraism, Romans worshiped the invincible sun god, that which has been the object of worship, knowingly now scorches men and causes them pain. So in plague number four, man's message, all must worship on the day of the sun. And what is the hidden message of the fourth plague? All true worship is in Christ. More from Psalm 91. It's a beautiful psalm. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the wings of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. It's a beautiful psalm. So in summary, the first plague calls us to give Him our bodies. Our physical security is in Christ. The second plague calls us to give Him our money, our economic security is in Christ. The third plague calls us to give him our whole life, how only in Christ we can find true, genuine life. The fourth plague calls us to give him all of our worship and the affections of our hearts because all true worship is where? In Christ. These aren't arbitrary plagues. Then we get to the fifth plague. Verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. There we see it again. And so the fifth plague is specifically poured out where, does it say? On the seat of the beast. And as a result, the kingdom of the beast becomes full of darkness. 
Friends, the beast is the power in which the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority in Revelation 13, 2. We know it to be the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, the power, the entity, if you will, that has influence all around the globe, and they have looked to the beast for light. Even today, what does the papacy have to say? Makes the news. What do the Methodists have to say? What do the Baptists have to say? I don't know. I haven't heard. So they've looked to the beast for light, but now there is only thick, dense darkness. This entity that for so long has been leading the charge, somehow there is a darkness surrounding this power, and the world takes notice, and it feels so ominous and so eerie. Maybe there's even cold that goes along with this darkness. I don't know. But people start to put two and two together. All these things they said they could promise, they haven't been able to deliver. And now we have this darkness covering. It seems to me that we've been duped. What did Jesus say in John 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What about Psalm 119, verse 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The reality in this plague is that all light is only in Christ. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the truth. So man's message, we are the source of light. We're the source of truth. We can change it. We have the authority. And God's message is all true light is where in Christ. All truth is where in Christ. And so in case you missed it, even in the seven last plagues, Jesus is at the center of every part. In Christ, we are secure, we are sheltered, we are safe. And so we have sores, sea turns to blood, rivers turn to blood, scourging sun, we have darkness, then we get to plague number six. Hang on. This is where it gets a little bit more challenging. But for all that we've done, this won't be a problem. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world and gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And skipping down to verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. What is this talking about? Well, this is a hinge point, if you will, in these plagues. While the first five plagues are describing things in literal language, there is a transition that we don't want to miss in this sixth plague because the hinge is now that it's going to symbolic language in the sixth plague. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's just look at the things it mentions, the river Euphrates, the kings of the east, the three unclean spirits like frogs. There's a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet. We've seen them once before already or several times. We have the battle of Armageddon. All of these are symbols used to portray literal powers and events. The language just offers that to us. And then there in the middle, Jesus pronounces a blessing to those who watch and keep their garments. The garment is also a symbol, is it not? So let's go see if we can go through and decode these. Let's go back to verse 12 again. 
It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters dried up. Let's think about this for a second. The great river Euphrates flowed through ancient Babylon. It was the source of life and power and beauty for Babylon. It's no different today. You go camping, where's the water? If there's no water, we're going to find a different campsite. You also remember the story of how Cyrus of Persia worked to divert the flow of the river Euphrates from Babylon. And so the drying up of the great river Euphrates in 539 BC led to the destruction of ancient Babylon. And so here, the great river Euphrates is drying up again, but this passage is not referring to some literal river that flows through modern-day Iraq and the land of ancient Babylon. Rather, the great river Euphrates in Revelation 16, 12 represents the source of life and support for modern Babylon. Revelation 17, 15 says that the waters where the harlot of Babylon sits represents peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's what the waters represent. And so when it is drying up, the support of the people is drying up. Those that went along and received the mark of the beast and now they're the recipients of the plagues and they see that those that didn't receive the mark of the beast are not the recipients of the plagues and they see the darkness and all these other things and they're saying, we're not buying this anymore. All these things you promised, you can't deliver. And so the support of Babylon dries up when the territory of the Vatican and its kingdom is affected by intense darkness and so on. It's clear that God is judging the beast's power and the support dries up. So if we're continuing on, if we're taking notes, it says, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Who are the kings from the east? Well, before it was Darius and Cyrus, the kings to the east of Babylon and Medo-Persia. But now the kings from the east represent Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the Father who is one with Christ. Therefore, it's plural, kings from the east. And Babylon is this threefold union of spiritualism, the papacy, and apostate Protestant America. Revelation 3, 2 and 1. Where does it talk about Jesus and God as king? To him who overcomes. And we could look at several others. I just put one in here. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That's Jesus. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What does it mean to sit on your throne? It means you are a king. So the way the kings of the east might be prepared represents the second coming of Christ. Notice this in Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the where? East and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So because of the plagues, the mark of the beast, the sores, the water turning to blood, the source of life, the darkness, the support is drying up and it's preparing the way for Jesus to come. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl, verse 12, on the great river Euphrates and his waters dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. But then verse 13 is a response to all this. Is the devil just gonna lay down? Is he going to surrender his sword? Is he going to say, got me, I'm done? No. And so here's the response. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Why frogs? If you recall the plagues in Egypt, 
Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate some of them. The rod to a snake, we can do that too. The water to blood, we can do that too. Frogs, yeah, we can do that too. But notice after the frogs, they can't replicate any of the plagues. You could say that frogs were the very last plague that they could duplicate. Or you could say it this way, this was the last deception of those magicians in Egypt. So they're building one final deception at the close of time. The use of frogs shows that this is the very last deception of the devil. Satan will be able to use supernatural manifestation to deceive the world prior to the second coming. This is going to be his last hurrah. And here it comes. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's them. The three frogs, these three, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, that's who we're talking about. Sometimes we refer to this as the unholy trinity. The dragon is Satan, clearly identified in Revelation 12, verse 9. That serpent who uses supernatural miracles, also known as spiritualism. I mean, who's at the heart of spiritualism anyway? The devil. The beast Is spiritual Babylon or the Roman Catholic church-state power, as we saw clearly defined in Revelation 13, the first 10 verses? We could also call it the beast coming up out of the sea. And then the false prophet is apostate Protestant America, as we see in Revelation 13, 11 to 17. Or we could call it the beast from the earth. And it's also mentioned in Revelation 19, 20. So these three powers, this unholy trinity, are working together to cause the world to receive the mark of the beast. And now, during the plagues, they will not allow this support to dry up without using the same manifestation they used prior to the close of probation to again deceive the entire world one last time. We're losing support. This is going to have to be a big one. And so in verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The last great battle, the last conflict. This is Satan's last stand. And verse 16 is the same idea and they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Great Controversy 561 says this, Satan has long been preparing for his final effort to deceive the world. Foundation of his work was laid by the assurance given to Eve and Eden, you shall not surely die. In that day that you eat thereof, that your eyes will be open, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. First lie, still spins it today. Little by little he has prepared the way for his masterpiece of deception. In the development of spiritualism. He has not yet reached the full accomplishment of his designs, but it will be reached in the last remnant of time. Says the prophet, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. They are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and the whole world. We just read that. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then she says this, except those who are kept by the power of God through faith in his word, the whole world will be swept into the ranks of this delusion. The people are fast being lulled to a fatal security to be awakened only by the outpouring of the wrath of God. So just when the plague seemed to have dried up all support, 
of those who have received the mark of the beast, spirits of demons and devils work miracles to influence kings of the earth and the whole world because they're so used to what you see is what is reality. You know, there's a remarkable passage in the great controversy that I'm going to show you here in just a moment. We've looked at it already in this series, and in my timeline, I put it back earlier. I thought that's when it was, but I'm not infallible. Sorry. That's why you have to go back and check it out. And I said when I preached on this earlier that, you know, some say this, some say that. I cite over here. Today I'm going to do what politicians are very good at. I'm going to flip-flop. At the end of the day, I, you know, the devil has all kinds of deceptions. But I think it's after the close of probation. I think it's after that period of time. I think it's within the seven last plagues that Satan does personate Christ. Before I thought, what sense would that make to not do it before the close of probation? Who are you going to fool? But somehow the devil still thinks that if he can fool God's people then, he can still be successful in the great controversy. And so he puts it all on the line. Why do I think that? Largely from this quote from Spirit Prophecy. What if it is before? I'm okay. But here's why I've changed my mind. Here's the passage. And I didn't notice this before because it's not in quotes. And anybody who's read Spirit Prophecy before knows that she quotes Scripture all the time. And sometimes she tells you she's doing it and sometimes she just does it. This is one of those times. It says the spirits of devils will go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world. Do you know where she's quoting? We just read it, didn't we? It's right here in the sixth plague. This unholy trinity. Spirits of devils, they go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to fasten them in deception and urge them to unite with Satan in his last struggle against the government of heaven. But these agencies, rulers and subjects, will be alike deceived. She's quoting Revelation 16, 14 there at the top. And what follows? Persons will arise pretending to be Christ himself and claiming the title and worship which belong to the world's redeemer. They will perform wonderful miracles of healings and will profess to have revelations from heaven contradicting the testimony of the scripture. All of this happening within the sixth plague. And then it says, as the crowning act of the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. And this is what we've read before. The church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the culmination of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. If we're living through the plagues, and yes, we're being preserved through the plagues, it doesn't mean we're not still feeling some of the effects of the plagues. But God is still has his protective hand over us. But we're still in desperation. We're saying, God, where are you? And the hope that we are clinging to is that Jesus will come and he will rescue us in our 11th hour. And so we're looking and we're hoping and we're hoping and we're looking and now Satan says, now's my time. They're more vulnerable now than they've been all along thus far. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in Revelation. And people will say, see, see, see. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. All of a sudden, the troops get rallied again. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. Truths, not all falsehood. 
He's quoting scripture, pastor. He heals the diseases of the people, and then in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands that all hallow the day which he has blessed. He declares that those who persist in keeping holy the seventh day are blaspheming his name by refusing to listen to his angels sent to them with light and truth. And so all the support is drying up, but when this strikes, yes, we're back in this. I knew we couldn't be wrong. And this is the strong, almost overmastering delusion. Like the Samaritans who were deceived by Simon Magus, the multitudes from the least to the greatest give heed to these sorceries saying, this is the great power of God. But the people of God will not be misled. Why? Probation's already closed. God already knows the minds and hearts that are committed to him. And so he's already put a seal upon them. And those that have not chosen his seal have received the mark of the beast. And so all the way through these seven last plagues, it's revealed that God knows, that God is just. And so the people of God will not be misled. The teachings of this false Christ are not in accordance with the scriptures, and they see it. Why? It must mean that they know the scriptures. His, referring to false Christ, his blessing is pronounced upon the worshipers of the beast and his image, the very class upon whom the Bible declares that God's unmingled wrath shall be poured out. Again, this is plague language. And so, in trying to correct a little bit here, I told you in phase four, where they enforced the death decree, I had, let's see, Satan personates Christ, the second one down. I'm just going to do a little something, something. There we go. I'm going to put it down there. If you want to leave it up top, that's okay. But I think it rightfully is placed at the bottom. The reality is the devil is going to deceive at every step of the way with the best he's got. And the reality also is it's not knowing the sequence as much as it is knowing Jesus and his word. But I'm going to keep going. I think even through these plagues, this verse will hold true. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. But then there's one more piece. We skipped over verse 15, and it's inserted right here in the middle of this final battle. And we need to read it. It says there, Behold, I am coming. Future. It wouldn't make a lot of sense to say, Behold, I already came. That's not what it says. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Here's the reminder. Jesus is coming. The reminder that Jesus will be our ultimate deliverance. I am coming. What sense would it make for Jesus to say that I'm coming if he's already raptured his people before the plagues? It doesn't. And how is he coming? Well, it says as a thief. And they like to use that too. Well, see, the thief, one's going to be, you know, driving down the road, and one's going to be taken, one's going to be left, and the airplane and all the rest, and they take that one passage and they make a whole theology out of it. Let's look at this thief idea when it comes to Jesus coming. Matthew 24, 42 to 44, it says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. This verse refers to a thief, but it has nothing to do with it being a secret rapture. It's all about the timing of the event. I heard a story, I don't know if it's true, of an organist who used to play the opening hymn, and then because their preacher preached such long sermons, I know you can't relate, they would go home, the organist would, and she'd take notice, she's playing that opening hymn, who's here, okay, and then she'd go over to maybe Gordon Cloco's house and rob him blind, and then she'd come back and she'd play the closing hymn. Where were you on the day of May 8? Well, I couldn't have done it. I was in church. I'm in the bulletin. If the Clocos would have known at what hour, they probably would have stayed home and watched. Did that organist have to be quiet? Probably not. If they live way out in the boondocks, they can be as loud as they want to. Blow up the front door with TNT. It doesn't matter. The issue's timing. Here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Again, this verse is not about it being secret. It's rather focused on timing of the event. Here's another one, Revelation 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Again, not a secret event. This is focused on the timing of the event. And this one even talks about the noise, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise. I think you're going to hear it. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Oh, but somehow I missed it. No. It's not a secret silent rapture. The point is a thief comes at a time when you do not expect. Because if you knew exactly when they were coming, you'd be ready. Friends, Jesus is going to come at a moment the world is not expecting. And so he tells us, we need to watch, to hang in there, is what he's saying in this little verse here. Hang in there. I'm coming right before this last battle, the battle of Armageddon. And what is this battle of Armageddon in verse 16? Its meaning is derived from two parts of Hebrew. Har is mountain and Megiddo is likely from the ancient city of Israel named Megiddo. Megiddo itself is on a plain, but the mountain next to it is Mount Carmel. So really, the mountain of Megiddo is Mount Carmel. Do you recall another final showdown on Mount Carmel between Christ and Satan? And here, one last time, the kings of the earth and the whole world gather together in a war against this almighty God. And so we can put Armageddon there on number six. But notice number seven. And we're going to talk about this more next time. Because in the seventh plague that we see, well, I'll just read it. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Verse 18, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. 
Verse 20, then every island fled away and mountains were not found and great hail from heavens fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Friends, this idea that it is done is Jesus coming to rescue his people. It is done. Jesus will deliver his chosen ones. Jesus is coming to rescue his people. And so the next time we talk, we'll talk more. In fact, our whole subject matter is going to be the deliverance of God's people. Hallelujah. And so we put there on number seven, the coming of Christ. How are we to prepare for this event, friends? How are we to prepare for this little time of trouble, the close of probation, for Jacob's time of trouble? What does that look like? What do we do today? Or do we just live life as usual? Peace and safety, nothing's going to change. Just go about your daily lives. How do we prepare? I would suggest we prepare the same way Jesus prepared for his final conflict with the combined evil forces of all hell. And he says, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Christ gave us the solution for being ready for his coming, which is to watch, to keep your garments. Matthew twenty four forty two says, watch therefore, for you don't know the, the hour of your Lord that is coming. Matthew 25, 13. Remember the story of the ten virgins? We looked at that briefly too. Jesus says, watch therefore. For you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. What does it mean to watch? Am I supposed to watch the news? Well, the story of the ten virgins. This command is given to God's people after the five virgins in the parable are found to be foolish or lacking the oil of the Holy Spirit. By failing to watch, the foolish virgins lacked a life of conversion. As Pastor Hyman so eloquently preached recently, the question to ask is, are we convicted or are we converted? At Christ's greatest moment, of need in Gethsemane, his disciples fell asleep. Jesus rebuked them for failing to watch. Jesus then told them how to watch. He says, watch and pray. The way to watch and to be ready is to maintain an active prayer life with God. This is where many in our church fail. It's not enough to know about the signs of Christ's soon return. We need to know the signs. That's true, but we must also have a living, dynamic connection with God through a life of prayer. Jesus' disciples failed in Gethsemane. The foolish virgins in the church fail at the final crisis of earth's history. But friends, I'm convinced that God will have a people at the end of the world who watch and pray. The wise virgins that go in with the bridegroom to the marriage when the door is shut and probation closes. They have been watching and praying. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and they are found ready. But sadly, many in the church, the great majority of the church will be found unprepared for the overwhelming surprise of Christ's return. And so here in the heart of the sixth plague, Jesus is not only pronouncing a blessing for watching, he also proclaiming a blessing for those that keep their garments Here we see literally a direct connection to the Laodicean message. Those who fail to keep their garments will walk in nakedness and their shame will be seen. Notice the similar language that we see here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, the Laodicean church. Because you say, I am rich. 
I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. They do not know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. You thought you were rich. And white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Their garments here represent the white raiment of Christ's righteousness. Those that watch and pray will keep their walk with God strong during the plagues and by faith will experience the righteousness of Christ. But sadly, those who do not repent of their Laodicean condition, they're going to be spiritually naked and destitute of Christ's righteousness. And so in the sixth plague, the implication from Christ is that those who remain spiritually naked Laodiceans, lacking the garment of Christ's righteousness, they'll have received the mark of the beast. And they will suffer the effects of the seven last plagues. Friends, that's going to be a sad day when those, dare I say those of us, who have made a profession but have not watched and prayed, and kept the garment of Christ's righteousness by faith will be found out too late that their experience has not been genuine. It will be a tragic moment of shame as their spiritual nakedness becomes apparent, as boils start to cover their bodies. I thought you made a profession. It wasn't here. It was all just floating around up here. I was convicted, but I never was truly converted. I believe that's precisely why Christ offers this warning. Right in the middle of the description of the sixth plague, he does not want any of his dear children to be lost. Let us watch and pray and keep our garments because it is that living dynamic connection with God that will alone carry us through Jacob's time of trouble. Great Controversy 618, as Satan influenced Esau to march against Jacob. We're going to see here why we call it Jacob's time of trouble. So he will stir up the wicked to destroy God's people in the time of trouble. We've seen that. And as he accused Jacob, he will argue his accusations against the people of God. He numbers the world as his subjects, but the little company who keep the commandments of God are resisting his supremacy. If he could blot them from the earth, his triumph would be complete. He's not given up. He sees the holy angels are guarding them and he infers that their sins have been pardoned, but he does not know that their cases have been decided in the sanctuary above. Jacob prevailed because he was persevering and determined. His victory is an evidence of the power of importunate prayer. That's overly persistent prayer. All who will lay hold of God's promises as he did and be as earnest and persevering as he was, will succeed as he succeeded. Praise the Lord. Those who are unwilling to deny self, to agonize before God, to pray long and earnestly for his blessing, will not obtain it. Wrestling with God, how few know what it is. Have you wrestled with God? She continues, how few have ever had their souls drawn out after God with intensity of desire until every power is on the stretch. When waves of despair, which no language can express, sweep over the supply, how few cling with unyielding faith to the promises 
of God. Friends, now is the time to strengthen our prayer lives, to memorize Scripture. Where's your Bible going to be in the seven last plagues? I don't know where mine will be. But if I have it on the hard drive, I can then cling with unyielding faith to the promise of God. And I'm going to want Psalm 91 on the hard drive during that time. Are you? Because I'm going to be repeating it over and over and over and over and over. Just last week, I was talking to a childhood friend of mine. And we were talking about a situation in which a young man, about my age, just a little over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, died in a tragic helicopter accident. And he left behind a young wife and small children. And now the young wife has very aggressive cancer and she herself is going through treatments to fight for her life. And we were talking about how overwhelming this situation would be and is for this Avenus family. And I imagine in this situation, they're crying out to God with intensity. And perhaps you have your own situation where you're crying out to God with intensity. As you feel, every power is on the stretch. And maybe you're saying, Lord, why? Why is this happening? I don't know how much more of this I can take. Yet softly the response comes back. My grace is sufficient for you, David. And in light of our study today and over the last many months, could it be that God is preparing them, this family, that God is preparing you, that God is preparing me for what's coming? That as the angels are holding back the winds of strife, but are letting the evil winds of Satan start to blow more fully and more fully. Perhaps God is allowing things to happen in our lives to prepare us that by God's grace, these final events may not overtake us, may not overtake me, that by God's grace, he's showing you and me our weaknesses, our true lack of faith, our blindness, our nakedness, and he is continually giving the call, making the appeal, buy from me. Be clothed today in my robe of righteousness. So in the final days of earth's history, when every wind of false doctrine is blowing, when every deception is employed, when every power of hell is unleashed on his people, they will be able to stand through nothing but the power and grace and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the power of Jesus. And maybe he's doing that for us so that on this day, we may be found faithful. When Christ comes to take us home, because the promise is, if like Jacob, we hold on to God's promises and are earnest and preserving in prayer as he was, we too will succeed as he succeeded. How? In Christ. Clinging to Christ. Holding on to Christ. I will not let you go except you bless me and bless me and bless me until you come and give me the final blessing that's truly not the final blessing because it goes for eternity and eternity and eternity and eternity. I can't fathom eternity. Lord, I don't want to let you go. I won't let you go. 
but that you bless me. Dear Heavenly Father, we have come to the front this morning because we want to surrender all to you. We want you to have your way with us. We want to hide your word deep in our hearts. And no matter what goes on around us, we want to be grounded in Christ. So Lord, we're here this morning because as Jacob wrestled, he clinged to you. He said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Lord, we're begging for that blessing today. Amen. But we, we are confident that he who has promised so many times in his word that when we come to you, you will not turn us away. Amen. You long to fill us with your spirit. Yes. You long to give us joy unspeakable. Amen. You long to give us peace in the midst of crisis and strength to face the days ahead. So Lord, if there ever was a silver bullet, it's you. So we ask that you will so fill us and change us and mold us and prepare us that when those times come, you and you alone will see us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.